Well, um, we talk about the read-through um, of our Bible, and it's our main homework at Wellspring. And we hope you've started on that journey with us. And if you haven't and you need help, maybe ask your discussion leader or a friend to help you get started on that. You will be blessed mightily. Well, I'm going to pray again just because my heart needs to just calm here. I just need the Lord to calm my heart before we begin. Lord, we do come to you this morning, Father. We want to know you more deeply. We thank you, Lord, that the words of those hymns are so true of us who have been saved by you. I thank you for Amy and equipping her to lead us well in worship this morning and the sweet voice that you have given to her. Lord, we pray and ask you this morning to come and to be our teacher. And Lord, as we look at pride, I pray that you would have your way in us. I ask that you would convict us, Lord, and show us where that ugly sin is in our hearts. And Lord, how to battle that sin. And Lord, to rejoice, as Amy prayed, in, the, in your taking that sin in our place. We are humbled by that. And we do want to live our lives for you. So again, Lord, pray that you would have our, your way with us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before you turn your notebooks over, I want to test the memory on this yet. Is anybody brave enough to just stand up and quote what our um, Wellspring purpose is? Okay. I thought that might be true. So let me um, read, and I'm going to just stop and let you fill in the blank. So shout it out really loud, okay? The gospel or the um, Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God, so they live gospel-transformed lives. That's strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Good job. Now go ahead and turn over your notebooks, and we're going to look at our disciplines this morning. Number one is the heart, and soon these are going to become so second nature to you. They're going to just be an overflow for all of us. And as we talk with one another, these will be on our tongues. Well, discipline one is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. As we've learned, our hearts are in desperate need of God. And as we bring our hearts to the word of God, we grow in our knowledge of him and our affections for grow for him. We bring our hearts to his word, this provision, which he in his love and care for us, has given us to guide our hearts. He will do the work in us that needs to be done as we bring our hearts in full contact with his word. There is power in the gospel and in his word. So we set, as Ezra did, remember from last week, Ezra set his heart? Well, he resolved or determined to study the word of God. We must do that setting of our hearts as well. We're continually reminded in the gospel of who we once were. Wicked, in opposition to God, lost, without hope, rebellious, and the list goes on. God gave the righteous one to die for our sins, and he was raised to life again, overcoming sin and death. So now, we must be about shepherding our hearts, about counseling and leading and guiding our hearts to the word of God, to meet him there. This takes discipline and it takes resolve. But as we grow in our love for God, we're going to long for time in his word, time with him. So discipline, too, is the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. We want to give off an aroma of Christ in our homes and of 
one who loves God and cares for others, first in her home, for their hearts before the Lord. Like Ezra, we want to practice those things which the word calls us to. As women, we want the lot of God to always be in our hearts, and that will be on our lips. And as we feed upon his word, we can feed those in our home with his word as well. We'll be purposeful to minister to their needs, both spiritual and physical. We'll draw out, we'll ask questions, we'll encourage, and we will remind them of the gospel realities of those who believe. And as we talked about last week, the first place where the gospel ought to be displayed is in our homes. We practice here, and we show what the gospel has accomplished in us there first. Well, discipline three, with the heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her home, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Ezra, again, is our Old Testament example of the disciplines. Ezra first set his heart to study the scriptures and to practice it, and here in discipline three, ministry. Ezra taught the scriptures. God has graciously placed us in the body of Grace Bible. The gospel and all of its implications ought to always be on our lips to encourage, as we have been in our homes, encouraging those, um, encouraging now those in the body and all those whom God will bring across our paths each week. We want to always be pointing others toward Jesus Christ and his cross. Well, there's a quote at the end of your homework, and it's a great quote about understanding the Bible, what it is and what it isn't. And this is from Paul David Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. The scripture differs from an encyclopedia or Wikipedia, right? We don't really use encyclopedias anymore. But when I use Wikipedia, I don't need to read other articles to understand the one I'm reading at the moment. One article has no connection to another. There are no overarching themes. In the Bible, however, every passage is dependent um, on the whole. And the whole Bible is held together by interdependent themes that run through every passage like rebar the steel rods that reinforce concrete. These themes give a new sense of identity, purpose, and direction that will fundamentally alter the way I think, desire, speak, and act. The sad fact is that many of us are simply not biblical in the way we use our Bible. Being biblical does not mean merely quoting words from within its pages. Being truly biblical means that my counsel reflects what the entire Bible is about. The Bible is a narrative a story of redemption, and its chief character is Jesus Christ. He is the main theme of the narrative, and he is revealed in every passage of this book. Lasting change begins when our identity, purpose, and sense of direction are defined by God's story. So we're going to start at our outline. It's a great description of what the Bible is not, right? And at the top, it's um, the heart, biblical survey of the heart part two. Today we're going to review quickly what we've been learning about the heart, and then we're going to examine our hearts to see where the sin of pride is certain to be lurking about. So first I'm going to start with an illustration. It's helpful as we continue to try to understand God's word rightly, what it is and what it isn't. So on your outline you'll see an illustration for discipline one, the heart, the relationship between the word of God and the God of the word. So imagine that it's 112 degrees. You're out in the desert, maybe South Mountain, maybe some of you Camelback Mountain, and it's really hot, right? You're hiking, your water is gone, you're off the trail, and you are lost. And you are afraid. You've lost all sense of direction. You're afraid to step off the path in fear it's going to take you somewhere where you shouldn't go, further from where you should be. 
You're really scared. Well, how important at that point is it to be rescued? It's really important, right? It's your focus. It's your goal. It's a matter of life and death. Now imagine, suppose the whole time you have a satellite phone in your pocket. You're still in that condition. You have no water. You really need help. You're going to die. But you've got a satellite phone in your pocket. How important is that phone? It's very important, isn't it? Because it's the one means to the one end that you must have. You would protect it at all costs. You would value it. You would not lose sight of it. You surely wouldn't put it down and forget about it. You cherish it because it's the one means to the one goal. It puts you in contact with your rescuer. But sometimes when something is really important, we forget that it's not the goal itself. We put the emphasis on value on the means, not on the goal. Said another way, sometimes we can talk about the word of God, the means to, but not God himself. Here's what I'm saying. Imagine picking up that satellite phone and you're still in that desperate situation. And instead of calling your contact and contacting your rescuer, you start listening to music on it or playing games. It's ridiculous, right? To play games on your phone when you need to be rescued, but you've never used it to talk to your rescuer. That is foolishness. But that's what we do if we interact with the word. If we go through to our read-through in such a way that we don't interact with the God of the word. It's like being in a desert, playing on a game or listening to music on a phone, but not calling the rescuer. It is not okay to only go to the word to get right answers, to know more, to win a theological argument, or to check a box, but not meet with God. Do you see the difference? We have to have shepherd our hearts out of that way of thinking if we're there. The word is precious. It is precious. It is God's words to us. But it's not our ultimate goal. God is our ultimate goal. So discipline one is getting our hearts near to the rescuer, to our deliverer. Coming to the word of God to meet with the God of the word. Cherishing our time with our precious Savior. That we, that must be our goal. To know God, right? To know him so that we may love him. And so the word is precious to us and we treasure it. It is our one means to our one goal, God himself. Like that satellite phone, we must not neglect God's word. We don't lay it down or forget about it, right? We cherish it, we honor it, and we love it. Because that's how we draw near to him. So let's be the kind of women who, when we interact with the word, we would always be concerned to meet with God. I like to think about engaging with God in my time in the word. At Grace Bible, we want to be known as women who are all about the word. That is good. We want to be more concerned, though. If we just think that, we've fallen short. We want to be about, we want to be women who know the God of the word. So it's important to keep that perspective right about the word. So let's review from last week rather quickly from Discipline 1, the heart, a biblical survey. Question 1, what is the heart? Can you all throw out a few things loudly and quickly from the last week? What is the heart? I'm sorry? All of us. It's who we are in totality. Right. Remember that it's the seed of doubt and hardness and also of faith and obedience. Anything else? You're just being shy, I think. 
it's the center of our personality, right? It's the seat of our emotions and our will and our thoughts. Everything flows from the heart. It's the place in which God reveals himself to man. It's where conversion takes place and where renewal takes place in a believer. For the believer. When we say heart, we're talking about totality. So therefore, it's the focal point of God's evaluation of us. When we stand before him, he will not neglect our hearts, right? It's all of us. So question two, what is the condition of the heart? Well, it fails me, right? It's beyond my ability to cleanse. It's the inward source of my defilement, and it foolishly leads me into greater spiritual darkness. It's deceitful. It's desperately wicked, desperately sick. Now, there's a lot of talk among us, among, um, in the world, and even in some churches, about just follow your what heart. Well, knowing this about our heart, is that a wise thing to do? It is not, is it? Now we understand why Proverbs 28:26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Question three, is the heart aware of this? Is the heart aware of how devastated its condition is? It's not, is it? It's easily deceived, even when surrounded by blessings. It forgets God. God says there is nothing more deceitful. It can be deceived by others, and we can deceive our own hearts. So I have a heart that fails me. It's beyond my own cleansing. It's the source of my defilement. It foolishly invites spiritual darkness. It's easily deceived. And we learned last week, it's the most exceptional deceiver as well. But what is the highest calling of the heart? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. To love God, not with part of who I am, but with all of my heart, the totality of who I am. All out love my God. So you've got this massive eternal gulf between what our heart really is and what it's called to do, to love God. Well, does God see this predicament? Yes, he does. God sees all things. Actually, he's the only one who sees it accurately. I am the Lord, the searcher of the heart, he says. Well, question six, what, so what is the greatest need of our human hearts? And we looked at it from two perspectives last week. First, that our heart needs to be cleansed, to be changed, to be made new, and that we are responsible to do that, right? But what we're incapable of doing, God says, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. But we must admit our inability and plead with God. I can't do this. I have no ability to do this. God, will you do this for me? And we can trust God's promise. He will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Do you see why the Son of God came to suffer? He came to bear away our wicked hearts in his body on the cross and to give us a new heart, a heart capable of loving him. And before it was in opposition to him, it was a God-hater. I was a God-hater that I would understand and treasure the hope that I have in my rescuer and my deliverer. Well, what has God provided for our hearts in question seven? Those who are in Christ Jesus have a new heart. Yet, what did we learn? There's a residue of sin that remains. My flesh is still there. We need to starve out that flesh that loves itself. We need to feed our new heart with his word. And God 
in his kindness, gave us his word that we to help with our hearts, to bring our hearts in contact with it. Today we're specifically looking at what the heart or what the word says about a prideful heart and the danger to which our heart is ex- what pride exposes our hearts to. So I just want to remind you that though I'm the one whom God has placed in front of you today as his vessel to share these words, my heart is prideful. Every time I read through this lesson this week, God has been faithful to show me where sin remains in me. Actually, the last few weeks, before I even got here, where I have chosen to trust in myself rather than trust in him. So I'm right there with you. So let's turn, and it's all good. It's good news, you guys. This is hard to see, and yet God has made a way, right? He is a good master to us. We're going to look first at Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. So we're on the top of page two on your outline now. I'm sorry. Still so not used to all this technology up here. Okay. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and live in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses one from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase in silver or gold for himself. Now in verse 18, Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself. Who is going to write? The king is going to write. Verse 18. A copy of this law is what he's going to write on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words in his law and these statutes, so that his heart may not be lifted above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, he may not, um, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. He's to write a copy of the law himself. It's to be in his presence. He's to read it all the days of his life. Why? So that is, he'll learn to fear the Lord through obedience. The word will prevent him from lifting up his heart above others in arrogance and in pride from thinking I'm better than all the rest his, he needs the word to be close to his heart so that he doesn't exempt himself from the standard that everyone else has the king of Israel has to be on the same level as those around him and what would do the leveling? God's law God's word God's revelation of himself the great leveler for all of us is the word of God. The word is what will prevent him and us from lifting our hearts high above others. 
We all have a tendency, don't we, to exempt ourselves from some standard that's placed on us? As if we're something special, that we're somehow privileged? What we need is to be continually exposed to the word at a heart level, to prevent us from lifting our hearts above others, to being prideful. Our hearts desperately need his word. We want to be women who are in God's word, right? Not to check off a box or to impress someone. We need to know God, and we need to come to his word saying, if I don't see you and get you and love you through this word, I'm going to wither up and I'm going to die. I need you, Lord. When we open his word, we pray. And here's an example that we handed out to you that Scott has so graciously shared with us. You can make this your own or come up with something on your own. But I encourage you to read this as an example. How the wellspring disciplines might shape your prayerful approach to God through his word. So I'm going to read it this morning. Heavenly Father, I intend this time in your word to be an expression of worship of you, desire for you, love for you, need of you, and dependence on you. Any of this and all of this is only possible through Jesus Christ, your Son, who is my Savior. I approach you through him, my substitute and high priest. I have your word open before me because you have revealed yourself there more clearly than any other place, and I long to know you better. I desire to see you in all of your glory in the pages before me. I simply and humbly draw near to you to study you. Nearness to you through these pages of scripture is my good. I also have your word open before me because I need to learn more of the nature of my sin and fallenness before you so that I might better understand what danger I truly was in and what dangers still lurk within me and so that I might see the sin that provoked your righteous wrath toward your son and your grace that moved you to act as Savior toward me in him. Your word is open before me so that I might undergird my life again today and with your saving heart and motive in the gospel of your son who overcame the penalty of my sin and the power of my sin to enslave me. I need the foundation of your gospel under me clearly so that I can see just how you have equipped me through it to fight against my sin and to fight for obedience to you through Jesus Christ. I am here to rehearse your bedrock promises in the gospel to my soul. I have your word open before me to also study what righteousness and holiness of life looks like for one who has been made new into a new creature in Christ. By your grace and your power, as I see holiness of life placed in front of me in the pages of scripture, I long to better align my life and behavior with what pleases you. I desire my heart and my mind to be full of you because of what these pages reveal to me about you. I long for you to spill out of me into my home and wherever you lead me today. All who come in contact with me today must interact with a woman whose heart has drawn near to you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in your word and gazed upon your son in the gospel. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I love that. Well, we look back at the cross and all that it has accomplished for us, right? Giving us a new heart, one that's capable of loving our God. Now, when we hear the word arrogant or pride, we usually think of someone else, right? Pride is a lot easier to identify, especially in somebody else, than it is to define. 
But we saw last week the condition of our hearts, that we are prone to deceive and to being deceived. Just to make sure that we understand how pride displays itself and that we're seeing our own pride, let's start with some questions. This is from 41 Evidences of Pride by Nancy Lee DeMoss. I'm just going to read a few, not all 41. Are you quick to find fault with others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your husband or others in position of leadership? Do you give undue time, attention, and effort to your physical appearance, your hair, makeup, clothing, your weight, your body shape? Or are you proud that you don't spend time on that? Both ways, right? Are you proud of the schedule you keep, how disciplined you are, how much you're able to accomplish? Or are you proud of how laid back you are? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the best way, the only way? Do you have a sensitive spirit? Are you easily offended? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense? Trying to leave a better impression of yourself than is really true? Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin? Do you have a hard time sharing your real spiritual needs or struggles with others? Are you excessively shy? Do you resent being asked or expected to serve your family or your parents or others? Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Are you a perfectionist? Do you get impatient with people who are not? Do you tend to be controlling of your husband or your children, your friends or those in your workplace? Do you frequently interrupt others when they're talking? Does your husband or anyone near you feel like he can never measure up to your expectations? Do you often complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, your church? Are you more concerned about your problems and needs and burdens than you are about others? Do you worry about what others think of you? Too concerned about your reputation or your family's reputation? Do you neglect to express gratitude for the little things to God or to others? Do you neglect prayer and intake of the word? Do you avoid being around certain people because you feel inferior compared to them? Don't feel like you measure up? It's hard for you to let others know when you need help, practical or spiritual. When's the last time you said these words? I was wrong. Please forgive me. Are you sitting there thinking how many of these questions apply to someone else? Ouch. I remember hearing that list for the first time and thinking, okay, can you stop now? <laughs> Every question hit me harder than the one before, and it's, and it's still the same. By God's grace, maybe we've made progress, but pride is there. How has your picture of pride and arrogance changed? We need to be reminded right here that we all struggle with pride. Pride is at the root of all sin. Let's look at Proverbs 16.5. I keep turning and hoping I can read, but it's so... Um, from here, it's so small. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. This is God's response to pride. It will not go unpunished. God hates 
a prideful heart. But the Son of God, he was punished for pride and arrogance at the cross. God didn't change how he felt about it, though. Christ became my sin and your sin. Our next um, verse is Hosea 13, 4 through 6. It's a clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel at a time of exodus and wilderness wanderings. If you want to turn there, Hosea 13, 4 through 6. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, what happened? Their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Do you see how dangerous a prideful heart is? It leads to divine forgetfulness, spiritual amnesia. We forget God. There is this inherent danger in our satisfaction with being comfortable, having God's provisions, being blessed, and having satisfaction. We need to watch out. We have to watch our heart at every moment, and especially this one. That's when our hearts become proud. And that's when our heart begins to forget God. None of us are exempt from that, and we won't be. We have to watch out. There's never a day we don't have to be on the watch out for this. It's so much easier, isn't it, to cry out to God when things are bad? Maybe you have a hard relationship, or there's financial problems, or your health is failing. Those trials help us to see our need for the Lord, but we always need the Lord. What do we do? What can we do to be just as intentional about seeking the Lord when we're satisfied and comfortable? It's what we've been talking about, and we talk about, and we talk about, and we will continue to talk about. It's discipline one. We bring our hearts to meet with God in his word. He is the one who keeps us mindful of our constant, ongoing need for himself. And he does this through his word. So in Hosea, we saw one way pride shows up in our lives. We forget God. But when we find ourselves using the excuse of, of, let's say, busyness for forgetting God, for not meeting with God in his word or not praying, do you feel the pressure? Do you feel the conviction of pride? See, that's why it's so tricky about rooting out this pride in our lives. It wears a lot of different faces. We don't always recognize what's going on behind the sin. 2 Chronicles 26, verses 1, 4 through 5, and 16 through 18. I'll give you a minute to turn there. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. Verses, uh, chapter, or, I'm sorry, going down to verse 4. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. King Uzziah did right in the eyes of the Lord. He continued to seek God. And as long as he did, God prospered him. Verses 6 through 15 describe all kinds of victories and achievements. And it tells us why. In verse 7, God helped him. And then in 15, Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped by God until he was strong. 
He was marvelously helped by God, but what happened? He became strong. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud. It says in verse 16, Remember, pride is an overflow of the heart. It's the same danger we saw in Hosea. Success is very dangerous to our hearts. The very thing that we pursue sometimes, right? Sometimes more than holiness and humility. Verse 16 said, His heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Well, how is entering the temple to burn incense a corrupt act? How is, being, how is he being unfaithful to the Lord in doing that? Well, it shows us in verses 17 through 18. Then Azariah the king entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful to the Lord, and you will find no favor from the Lord God. Uzziah was unfaithful to God because he overstepped the boundaries of authority God had given him. The Lord had marvelously helped him, and he granted him successes and many victories. But service in the temple was reserved for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, it says. It wasn't his to take. Burning incense isn't a bad thing, But Uzziah was not qualified to do it. It was not his role. Well, how about us? Ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given to us? Ever tempted to work around your husband or your boss, maybe your parents? Rather than humbling yourselves and going to your husband or boss or teacher or parents or elders maybe or small group leaders, and asking for guidance and leadership, their permission maybe if necessary. A lot of times we want what we want and we want it now. We don't want to take the time. We're busy, remember? Rather than thinking what would honor God. But that is pride. Now, maybe Uzziah thought he was entitled. After all, he was the king, right? But again, he wasn't entitled. It's so easy. Our world is screaming entitlement like I'm entitled to something for me I have a right to me time I'm entitled to respect especially for my children right or I'm entitled to appreciation or I'm entitled to comfort here's where it helps me to see it in my heart how I react right here when I'm not treated the way I want to be treated how I think I'm entitled to be treated It's good practice to pay attention to this heart, to see its reactions and responses to things. We live in a culture that says we deserve fill in the blank. We deserve a break today. We deserve time alone. We deserve respect, fulfillment, happiness, health. We deserve retirement. But that's pride because what we think we want is more important than what God has given us right now. Listen, if God sees that you need something, he will surely give it. He's withheld nothing good from you. If you don't have something, it may be because God sees that you don't need it. Not right now. What about laziness? It could come from a sense of entitlement, right? Because I think I'm entitled to do what I want to do with my time. What might lazy look, laziness look like in our lives? 
It might look like overindulgence in sleep or entertainment, TVs, magazines, movies, or games. Maybe computer time, reading blogs, Facebook, email, Pinterest. Not that any of these are bad. Do you hear me? They are not bad in themselves. But we can just mindlessly allow ourselves to get distracted until we suddenly realize what should have taken just a few minutes has taken hours and we've neglected our God-given responsibilities. Laziness really is putting anything ahead of responsibilities. It's selfish gain. And I want to say it again. Many of the things we battle with when we battle laziness are not bad. But anytime we put what we want to do or think that we're entitled to ahead of what God has given us to do, like spending time with our husbands, helping our husbands, spending time with the Lord, caring for our homes, our families, our roommates, serving the body of Christ, reaching out to the lost, anytime we're putting ourselves first, which is what the world says we should be doing, right? That's pride. It's a great passage that helps us to see how one sin can easily lead to another kind of sin. Pride in the heart can lead to sense of entitlement, which may lead to overstepping authority or laziness. Sin has partners. There's connections. Sin brings others along, right? So let's go to the New Testament, although it's not in your notes. James 3.13. Now in chapter 2, James has been dealing with those in the body who were drawing party lines and showing preferential treatment, especially for the rich. They dishonored the poor. So James 3.13. And I'm going to read through 16, actually. He gives us instructions and warnings. And then in chapter 3, starting 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior and his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, where? In your heart. Watch out. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. See, if we have bitter jealousy in our heart, if we have selfish ambition in our heart, it puts us in a position to be arrogant and prideful. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition unchecked will lead to arrogance. So we need to be wise and watch out. Watch out. Again, this passage in James helps us to see how easily one sin leads to another sin. The good news is that when we fight sin strategically, by his grace, it helps in defeating other ones, right? It's a chain reaction, like dominoes. Dealing with one, like jealousy or selfish ambition, what's the root of that? Arrogance and pride. We might actually make ground with other sins as we battle. So far, we've seen a few faces of pride. Forgetting God, sense of entitlement, overstepping boundaries, laziness, bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition. And if we go after the root, if we see and repent of pride, we actually will be doing battle with other sins. Because one sin is tied to another. We need to train ourselves to be on the lookout for that, right? It's like a weed. It's not just this, but there are all those tentacles that go out. We have to make these connections. We want to see what's going on in our hearts. And we can ask others to help us do that. We could probably be done at this point, right? There's, this is so convicting, but we want to hang in there. 
God is revealing places of pride in our hearts, and it's his blessing that we can see that to root it out. We want to purify our hearts, so we thank him for revealing our sin to us. Let's look at some other faces of pride. In 2 Chronicles 32, we're going to look at King Hezekiah. 2 Chronicles 32, you have it on your outline. 24 through 26. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. Another version says, he did not respond to the kindness showed him because his heart was proud. It's another face of pride. He didn't respond respond to the kindness God had showed him. He wasn't thankful. How might we fail to respond to God's kindness? Well, I love the verse, Romans 2, 4, says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Do you hate admitting sin? Do you seek forgiveness when you've sinned against someone else? Or your sin has affected someone else in some way? We can be tempted to ignore it, to think everyone should just move on. Forget it. Everybody's fine. Let's move on. We're tempted to think it's not really a big deal. That is failure to repent, a failure to respond to God's kindness. How about contentment? Discontentment and complaining are failure to respond to God's kindness a failure to recognize God's kindness to us in all circumstances. The complaining attitude is so easy to fall into, at least for me. How about our appearance? How hard we work, how tired we are. Maybe complaining about unbelieving family members or difficulties with the people we live with or work with, financial problems or self-pity because we think our lives should just be different somehow. Complaining in any form reflects a discontented heart. It's discontent because at a heart level, we really think we deserve something better, something different than what we have right now. We don't really believe that these circumstances are God's good for us, God's best for us. And believing that is a failure to respond to God's kindness. And 2 Chronicles 32 says that is evidence of a prideful heart. And at the end of that, at um, verse 25, look at the consequences of that pride. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Do you realize that the impact our pride and sin has on others? They may have to experience the consequences from our sin, from my sin. But look at verse 26. However, Hezekiah humbled the heart, the pride of his heart. Who humbled his heart? Hezekiah did so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. And that gives us encouragement, doesn't it? That God was willing to turn back his wrath in the face of repentance. And that's the hope of believers who live after the cross, is that Christ bore God's righteous wrath against my pride and against your pride. He gives us a new heart so that we have the ability to repent of pride. Well, Obadiah 2.3, a small book. It's between Amos and Jonah in the Old Testament. Here's another way pride might be displayed. It's just a one-chapter book, so verses 2 and 3. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. 
You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. There it is again. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty places. What face do we, of pride do we see here? He says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. So we see again, the heart is easily deceived. It's all through scripture. It's the best deceiver. So how are the Edomites deceived? Well, God is saying he will bring them down. And they persist in prideful. Did I skip something? Hmm. No, I said that. Sorry. So they persist in prideful self-confidence. Who will bring me down to earth? That's proof of an arrogant heart, of a deceived heart. It's refusing to believe God's word. Wow. How could prideful self-confidence, self-reliance, or self-sufficiency show up in my heart? Well, we pray, right? We're praying, women. But how many pray about decisions that need to be made, right? You don't know what to do. You need wisdom. So we pray, right? We should. That's good. God calls us to pray. He's ready to answer. Praise God through Christ. He made a way for us to become before the throne of grace. It's what he wants us to do, to be dependent on him. So why do we bring up prayer when we're looking at warning about deceptiveness of an arrogant heart? Well, it's important that we understand there is a right way to pray. When we humble ourselves, when we thank God, when we ask him for guidance to direct us, to biblical principles, to help in our decision, to bring counselors along, wise people who can offer wise counsel to us. Prayer is a time to examine our motives, admit how easily we're deceived, to admit how easily we persuade ourselves, our own hearts, to do what we want to do, and to admit that, to confess sin, and to remember the cross. Prayer is an amazing gift God has given us. It's the time to draw near to him. But what happens when a prideful heart intersects with prayer. I'm talking about the prideful heart that's coming broken and contrite. That should be us all of the time, right? It should be all of us. I'm not talking about the heart that's coming in humility, ready to confess and repent of pride. No, I mean a prideful heart that is not repentant. It's self-focused, maybe with selfish ambition and self-confidence. That heart might pray, but doesn't humble itself before God. It doesn't examine itself with God's word. It doesn't really want wise counsel. It's just what I should do. Now, when I'm in that condition, when I have an unrepentant pride and heart, I'm self-focused and self-grasping, my heels are dug in, I may very well deceive myself and come away from prayer, having convinced myself, my heart, that what I want is actually God's leading. Even if it's contrary to God's word, I'm convinced. That is serious stuff, isn't it? Do you see how dangerous our prideful hearts can be? Because I convince myself in prayer to do what I want to do anyway. It's what I want to do in the first place. Now I've convinced myself through prayer. That's a hard challenge. If one of you has a concern about what I'm doing, about my decision, and you come to me and you ask some really great questions and you raise some biblical principles, I might throw out the trump card. Well, I've prayed, right? I've prayed about that. Now, please understand, many times when we say we've prayed, we have prayed humbly before. We have prayed in a biblical way. So we need to be gracious with one another. But when when it is the case and we have gone 
humbly before the Lord and biblically we've asked him, we'll probably be open to those questions, right? And biblical counsel from others. Do you see the difference? So let's be careful about how we ourselves pray, make decisions, and ask God to humble ourselves and others for help to see where we might be deceiving ourselves. Here's the deal. Deceptiveness of pride is especially hard to battle with because the very nature of deception is what? It's deceptive. It's deceived. We can't see it. It's a blind spot for us. The only way to battle a foe we can't see is with truth. Truth of God's word. That's why we shepherd our heart with the truth of the gospel and we and with the help from the body of Christ. If you don't have a woman near you who you can share with, it need, you need to have one that helps you to see. Do you see that how discipline one and two and three all flow together? There's protection in shepherding our hearts with God's word and in being concerned with helping one another. And when pride is exposed in our hearts, what should we do? It's tempting for us to forget God, often through blessings and successes. Not staying within my authority, sense of entitlement, laziness, right? That whole list. It helps to try to recognize that there are connections between the sins, like we talked about. They partner with one another. One sin is rarely operates on its own. We have to fight sin strategically. We are in a battle, ladies. We deal with that pride when it's exposed by God's grace in the gospel. These are the things we must bring to the cross. We confess. We repent. We seek forgiveness from those we've sinned against in our pride and against our holy God. These are the things for which Christ died for. Because pride exposes our heart to danger, we ask God, please show me where pride exists. Show me where I tend to be arrogant. And God, give me eyes to see. We need to ask him because it's easy for us to see pride in others but not in ourselves. That's the effect of sin in us, right? It blinds us, especially to our own pride. What do we do when others are being arrogant? Well, it's a great opportunity to ask the Lord, God, make me nearsighted to see my sin before I see others. Help me see the big old log in my eye. I might go help my sister who has a speck in hers. So we humble ourselves. We repent of sin. We repent of this prideful heart. Let's take a look at what God's word said about humility, which is the opposite of pride. And we're going to look at 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Humility is nothing but a right judgment of ourselves, right? That's what William Law says. He's an 18th century dead man. A.W. Tozer says, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority, He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God does, and he stopped caring. He is not concerned about what others' opinions of him. So 1 Peter 5-7, through he's challenging the young men to be subject to their elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's interesting, isn't it, that he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Humility is something that has to be lived out in our relationships. Left to myself, I'm not going to see my need for humility. But when I'm in relationship with others, my heart is exposed. 
and I'm in a better position to see my heart. You know, like when you're criticized, for example, or rebuked or admonished or corrected or exhorted, it's so easy to feel hurt or misunderstood and become defensive. But that's pride. And if feeling good about ourselves is as if feeling good about ourselves is more important than seeing an area where we need to grow. Now, we must be careful about how we go to others, right? I mean, of course, we go in humility, knowing that I'm right there with her. This passage says, Therefore, humble yourselves where? Under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And here he shows us how to humble ourselves in verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now wait, he calls us to humble ourselves by accepting the care he has for us? It's actually pride if we're rejecting his care. C.J. Mahaney writes this about this verse in um, his book, Humility. Where there's worry, there's anxiousness, pride is at the root of it. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. So the solution is to humble ourselves where? Under the mighty hand of God. So when we need to humble ourselves before others, when we need to confess sin, or when we're criticized or rebuked, look beyond that person to the mighty God who cares for you. He is the one who is hum- who that you're humbling yourself to. He is the one who is at work in you for your good and for his glory. Humility is having an accurate view of us, of me, of you, and of our Savior, and seeing others and as an instrument um, God is using to purify us, to reveal that sin. They're not our enemy. It's for our good. The heart of humility is remembering the gospel and fleeing to Christ. It's crying out, admitting how prideful we are, and thanking and praising him for what he has done for us. At the cross, God poured out his wrath against our pride. He set us free. We're no longer slaves to pride. That's what makes repentance joyful. Remembering Jesus is our only hope. He is the one who is sufficient. He is our abundant hope for cultivating this heart of humility. And that being near him, being right with him, is better than anything this prideful heart or attitude could ever dare to offer. I'm going to look at Colossians 3, 12-14 on your outline. Not only will a humble heart draw us near to the Savior, it will also draw us near to one another. Watch what, how Paul starts out this gospel identity. This is great. You've got to catch this. So as those who have been chosen by God, chosen of God, holy and beloved. There it is. That's who we are in Christ. Holy, beloved, chosen of God. Because of that, because he has chosen you, because you are holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, humility, kindness, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Two things we don't want to miss. The command is to humble. To be humble is grounded in our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And if we are to wage war with 
pride and cultivate humility, we must feed our hearts with a steady diet of the gospel. Saturate yourself. Soak yourself in the gospel. Humility grows out of a heart that cherishes Jesus and the realities of the gospel. The second thing we don't want to miss is humility serves a greater purpose. Humility is essential for building unity and love between believers. That displays the work of the gospel so the world knows that we're his disciples. And isn't that what we want? We're not our own. We're his slaves. and He is a kind master. And he has entrusted us with a greater treasure, the greatest treasure, the treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross to pay for sins, to pay for pride, so we can walk in newness of life, so we can walk in those gospel realities, and we can live one another in such a way that the world says, wow, look how they love and care for one another. That's amazing. How do they do that? Why do they do that? That kind of living adorns the gospel. It puts Christ on display, declares the power of the gospel to make us what we could never be apart from Christ. So we're going to end today with Philippians 2, 1 through 7, and it's a great passage to end with because it brings us back again to our Savior, the only place we can go to cultivate a humble heart. Philippians 2, 1 through 7. Therefore, if any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what we're called to be, not driven to please ourselves, but pursuing love, unity with the body of Christ. It's similar to Colossians 3. There's an appeal to unity and love. And what does that require? Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That is humility. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have your attitude in yourself, which was also in Jesus Christ. Now listen to what this says about our Savior. It's a familiar passage, so let's not miss any part of it. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Aren't we people who love to grasp, to take hold of what we want? But Jesus was not a grasper. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. A slave, Jesus took the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's how we have received enabling grace. That's it. The grace to turn from pride in its many, many faces to humility and love because Jesus gave himself on the cross to bear away the penalty of my selfish ambition, my sin, to break the power of sin over us, to give new life and a love relationship with him and with his people. That is the power of the gospel. These are the things we must bring to the cross. These are the things for which Christ died for. Let go. Let him go. Repent and follow him. That's how we humble ourselves, by drawing near the cross, where we find this glorious hope for living with one another in unity. Well, we've been looking at the ways that pride gets its foot in in our door, in the door of our hearts, tempting us to forget God, often through success and blessings, not staying within our authority, sense of entitlement or having laziness, not responding to God's kindness, not repenting of sin or complaining or discontent. So to battle pride, we need to be about, be on the lookout for its many faces. The list is endless. 
Ladies, we can be sure that we struggle with pride. We all struggle with pride. But if we're diligent to think through, to find that sin behind the sin, like a like a onion peeling back the layers to find what's at the roots, or a tree finding the root of what it is as we battle, and we've got to battle hard, we are called to be holy. We will be alert to the, our hearts and where that pride is lurking. And we can live in newness and fullness of life because of what he's done at the cross. And we want to give him things. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. You have chosen us and you have called us holy and beloved. Lord, we ask as you have convicted us of pride this morning that you would not leave us there, that by your enabling spirit we would battle hard. It's not enough for us to be convicted. We recognize we have to be doers of the word as well. Your grace is sufficient for us. You have died for the sin of pride and for sins past, present, and future. And we stand before you as if we have never sinned. Amazing truth. Amazing love. But we are in a battle to fight the residue of sin in our hearts, and we need you. It is good to be near you. Oh, Lord, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look, Lord, and see you there, who made an end to all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We praise you, God. We thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.